we may or may not wrap up Second Timothy today. We will either wrap it up today or next week. I'm not really sure how far we're going to get today. But that's okay. Let's have a word of prayer before we start. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we can again be here and enjoy your word. Thank you for giving us the privilege of being outside in such a beautiful day. Enjoy your creation at the same time that we worship you, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the one who is all good and gives us so many good things. And so thank you for allowing us to enjoy this day and enjoy this time together worshiping you. I pray you help us to be encouraged and challenged by your text as you have written to to Timothy. I pray that you will help us to see ourselves in these pages and that we will at the same time come to a realization that we are people desperately in need of your mercy. And so open our eyes this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we've been doing a character study the last couple of weeks as Paul gives out a big laundry list of characters as we've seen the last few weeks. As we've said uh, the last two weeks, I believe, in a row, it's important that we remember that the, that the characters that are given in this story called the Scriptures, this grand historic redemptive story, are given to us for our instruction in a variety of ways. Today we have a couple negative and a couple positive characters that we're looking at. Some of the characters that we'll find in the book today, we know nothing about, absolutely nothing about them, except for what Paul says here. Other ones we know a little bit, but it's important at the same time that we learn from them. As I've said in the past, it's important that we consider ourselves in light of these people that that Paul is presenting. Who are we in the storyline? Not that they're prototypical of everyone, but for our self-evaluation and our thinking with regard to Jesus Christ and our love for Jesus or the lack thereof. Does that make sense? Let's look at the text first. We're going to start way back in verse 9 and read to the end of the chapter, end of the book, and then we will jump back into our text. Paul says this in his final communication to Timothy. He says to Timothy, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke is alone with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me, to me for ministry. Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come to me before winter. Eubulus sends greeting to you, as do Prudence and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace to you. Our text this morning starts in verse uh, 14 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're introduced right off the bat to 
a character who is certainly a character in Paul's story. Notice what he says again, 14 and 15. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. We don't know a whole lot about Alexander the coppersmith. As a matter of fact, we can only make guesses. There's two Alexanders in the scriptures, one in Acts, in the book of Acts, and one in 1 Timothy. Most likely, the, the Alexander of these references, it's a common name, but the Alexander he references to Timothy is the exact same Alexander he would reference to Timothy in the previous book. It would make most sense. He says something about him in 1 Timothy. He adds in 2 Timothy that he's a coppersmith. Now, that could mean one of two things. It could mean, on the one hand, that he is someone who builds idols out of copper. Possibly that is what he's doing. He's building idols. He's obviously, Alexander means he's Greek, he's not Jewish. But he could be building idols. Okay, that's a possibility. The other possibility is that this Alexander the coppersmith is a guy who just works with copper. Copper was a very common metal that was used in that day. In fact, it was one of the most common metals that were used in that day. It was easily, easily pliable and formable and used for all sorts of things. A lot easier to use than, than making iron or steel. So, actually, they didn't make steel, they made iron. Um, but a lot easier to mold. You wouldn't make swords with it because swords wouldn't stand up against steel. But you could make all sorts of things out of, out of copper. He may very well have just been a coppersmith, generically speaking, who made items out of copper, common household and work items out of copper. He could very well have been someone who did both. He made common household items out of copper, and he also made idols for people to worship. It could have been both. The simple matter of fact is that with regard to this man called Alexander, Paul had something really significant to say to him, and what he has to say to him is striking. What he says to, about him to Timothy is this, watch out for him. In other words, be aware of, of Alexander all the time. Why? Well, the text tells us very simply, because why? Anybody know? What does 2 Timothy 4 say? He did me great harm. Now, he doesn't go beyond that and say how he did great harm to him in 2 Timothy the assumption in Paul writing to Timothy is that Timothy understands how he did a great harm. The assumption is that Paul know, or that Timothy must know this Alexander the coppersmith. Otherwise, why warn him? He must come in regular contact with Alexander the coppersmith. So that's why he would warn him. If he never saw him, why warn him? If I knew someone, for example, I used to live in Wisconsin. If I knew someone by the name of David who was doing great harm to the gospel in this little area in southeastern Wisconsin. It would be really foolish for me to tell you to watch out for David, who is doing really bad damage to the gospel in southeastern Wisconsin. That wouldn't make any sense, unless you're going to southeastern Wisconsin. Then maybe, especially if you're going anywhere near the town he was in, then maybe. However, if there was a guy in Royersburg or Spring City or someplace like that that was doing great harm to the gospel in some way, form, or fashion, or Pennsburg, 
then it would be really important if I knew about it, if he's doing great harm, and you come in, I know you come in regular contact with him, it would be very important for me to warn you. Can I ask you a quick question? Why would it be really important for me to warn you? What do you think? So you don't get hurt? What else? It's true, so you don't get hurt spiritually, but what else? Okay, you may encounter resistance from him. Good. What else? What? So that you can continue to warn others. Good. But what else? Because you can already you start looking for the result, of the consequences of what he's done. Good. What else? So you'll be ready to contend for the gospel. Good. What else? Yeah. Could be. Could be. And so to watch out for your own life, although not necessarily to watch out for your own life because that's never been something concerning for Paul, has it? So I would say not, not for the purpose of watching your own life, but watching the gospel, right? What else? Oh, communicate the truth to him. Good. What else? Yes, that's what I'm looking for, that you don't get sucked in by him because the reality is when someone is doing great harm to the gospel, what Paul is trying to imply here is that the great harm to the gospel is primarily because people are being duped. They're being duped by this guy. They're being deceived by this guy. You see, that's the problem. The problem is the false gospels that are being presented are easily swallowed. I have some friends who don't believe in God. They don't at all. And that should be not unique to you. You shouldn't have a lot of friends who don't believe in God at all either. I, I, this one friend especially who is virally anti-God and anti-Christ. Not the anti-Christ, you get my point. He's anti-Christ. And he looks for every opportunity he possibly can to mock Jesus, to ridicule, to, 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 to figure out ways to say things that absolutely destroy, in his mind, the idea of Christ and, and the Father and the Holy Spirit. It is so blatant to me and to any true believer that you'd never be duped by it. If you were coming in contact with this guy, I may say, Watch out for him just so that you're prepared to contend for the gospel so you don't go in blindly and unable to contend. But the point is, with, I would argue with regard to this guy, that something else is going on. It's one of those subtle things that's easily deceived. It goes down easy. And it lulls you to sleep. So Paul writes to Timothy, and he says to Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. Not talking about physical harm. What he's talking about most likely is this. He's going around following Paul and speaking another gospel to his people he's ministering to most likely. And it's close enough to sound good. Don't know the specifics. We don't know much about his message nor the person. We know a few things about the person I'm going to look at in just a second. 
but he's doing something that causes great harm to Paul. And I would argue when, when you, you cannot separate Paul and his ministry from one another. So he says, you're, he's doing me great harm. He's talking most likely about his ministry because they're one and the same. So he says in, in verse 14 and 15, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And he says to Timothy, beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. So there in verse 15, we're introduced to part of the problem with regard to this guy, Alexander. He opposes strongly the message that Paul is preaching. He strongly opposes it. Well, what does that mean? Well, it could mean any number of things, right? I would argue Paul purposefully makes this statement very broad brush. He doesn't dial it down and say he opposes this aspect. He doesn't say what, what Alexander the coppersmith is opposing is my statement that Jesus Christ is God and he's the Messiah and he died for your sins. That's not what, what Paul says about him, is it? He says he strongly opposed my message. Did Paul's message, was it only containing Christ died for your sin and he's the Messiah? Is that it? No, he wrote 17 books. Now he develops who Christ is all over the place, right? In many, many different ways. And he develops this idea that if Christ is who he says he is, and if you have been bought with a price, then this is what happens, right? Isn't that what he says? This is what happens. This is what fades away. This is what becomes strong. If I am a recipient of the light of Christ and the love of Christ, then the light of Christ and the love of Christ begins to what? Come out. It begins to reflect from me, right? That, th those are the type of things that, that Paul talks about. Any one of those things could be something that the Alexander the coppersmith is opposing. Now, again, I'm just going to speculate at this point in time. Because I could be wrong. I'm going to speculate that although it's possible he could actually be opposing the pure, unadulterated gospel. Jesus Christ is not God. He could be doing that. There's no question he could be that blatant. Jesus Christ is not the Messiah. Jesus Christ did not die for your sins. Just because Paul tells you the story doesn't mean it's true. He could be that blatant. He also could be someone, and legitimately so, could be someone who, quite to the contrary, is actively saying, yes, Jesus Christ is my Savior, and if you've received Christ as your Savior, He's your Savior too, but you don't need to grow and change. Don't expect growth and change. Don't expect to reflect the love of Christ. And it's okay if you don't. Don't expect that the love of Christ would, would exude out of you, that it would control you. Would that, could I just ask you a quick question? If there was a guy who was prominent in the community. And if he was a coppersmith, he would be in that day. Would it do great harm to the gospel of Paul, to Paul's gospel, to Paul's message, 
if someone who is prominent in the community was communicating that? Would it do great harm? Yes, horrible harm. If the person is prominent in the community, people look up to him, and he's living life like a secular would, if I use that term, and if he's communicating that it's not a big deal not to glory, glory in Christ and glorify Christ, and it's not a big deal to proclaim the gospel, it's not a big deal to, to not uh, minister to others, would that do damage? Of course it would. It absolutely would. If just change the scenario a little bit. If there was a deacon in our church who in our church started spreading, let's say Andrew started 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 living more of a secular life. I don't mean secular as he's got a secular job. I mean he's living a more secular, not God-centered, not not Christ-centered life as a deacon in our church. And as he starts talking to other people in the church and starts communicating to him, you know, I know Steve says that um, says that you know we, we if, if we if we're loved by Christ, we should be loving Christ, and we should be glorifying Christ and glorying in Christ, and and it should just it should be pouring out of our being that we're proclaiming Christ to a lost and dying world, and 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 in our own church body as well. I know Steve says that all the time, but you know that's kind of what pastors are supposed to say. You think that would do damage in our church? It would be devastating. It would be absolutely devastating. Would it be devastating, just a quick question, if Andrew never spoke it but lived it? If he never spoke that wrong gospel, because that's a wrong gospel. If he never spoke the wrong gospel, but he lived the wrong gospel, would that be devastating to our church? Would it? Oh, there'd be no question it would. Maybe well, it's only one person, right? Well, yeah, but he's a prominent member of the, of the community, of the church. Of course it'd be devastating. Because we're all looking for people, right? We're all looking for people to show us how to glorify Christ, aren't we? If we're believers. And a deacon should be doing that, right? Does that make sense? And if he's not... And we're looking to him to show how. Well, that's going to be devastating. It's a devastating nonverbal and a devastating verbal communication, either way. Well, whoever this, this Alexander the coppersmith is, Timothy obviously knows him. He did Paul great harm. And verse 15, again, he warns Timothy, be, beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. The implication, he strongly opposed Paul's, he's strongly going to do what? Opposed Timothy. Don't be deceived by him. First of all, Timothy, don't get sucked in. Secondly, oppose him like we did. Now, let me just say before we get off of 2 Timothy 4 and go into 1 Timothy and learn a little more about Alexander the Coppersmith, let me say this. <coughs> what Paul is trying to tell Timothy, the elder, and by extension, those who he ministers to, the faithful ones who will then minister to others also, is this. The way you beware of him is firstly, know the truth. Know the truth robustly. How can you beware of him just because Paul tells you? If you don't know the truth, 
And Paul tells you, beware of him. He did us much harm. Beware of him. You're either going to be irrationally aware, beware of him, right? Won't you? You'll be irrationally beware of him. And that typically looks like I won't engage with him. I won't interact with him. I won't do what Paul did. I won't what? Oppose him. Best thing to do is just to stay away. Well, what is that? Is that gospel? Is that gospel? That's not even close to being gospel. Paul doesn't tell, tell Timothy, stay away from him. Paul says, beware implication so that you can oppose him. Beware so that you can stand against him. So it's really important that Timothy, therefore, understands the truth. Because how can you oppose somebody if you don't understand the truth? You ever been there where you take a stand on something and you stand strongly against something and you speak against it and right after you finish, a guy speaks to you and absolutely dismantles you? You ever been there? He absolutely dismantles you. And you know why? Because you didn't have a clue what you're talking about. You ever been there? I have. It's absolutely humiliating. I spoke without knowledge. I was ignorant. I was foolish. I spoke without knowledge and was dismantled. The implication of the text Paul's giving to Timothy, especially it's not even an implication in the context, is what? Cling to you, however, 2 Timothy 3, you, however, cling to what you've been taught, what you've become convinced of. Cling to the Holy Scriptures. Because it's the only way you're going to contend. It's the only way. By the way, the other implication is this. If you're not clinging to the Scriptures, and you, what you've been taught and convinced of, you're going to, as we said in 2 Timothy 3, do what? Cling to something else. Well, guess what? You just joined Alexander the coppersmith. You realize that? If you don't know the truth, and you're not clinging to the truth, and you're not able to defend the truth, and if you're not someone who is steeped in the truth as per your spiritual age and the Spirit's work in your life, what you're going to be is another Alexander the coppersmith. Because here's the point. In ourselves, we have sinful hearts who always generate lies for us to follow and believe. They always do. And so we end up being small little Alexander Coppersmiths if we're not someone who is 2 Timothy chapter 3, but you, however, in light of everyone else who cares, but you, however, cling to the truth. We're told about this Alexander the Coppersmith in contrast to Timothy. We can say we have two different groups of people. We have a Timothy-esque person and an Alexander the Coppersmith person today. Those are the two categories. The one clings to the truth, the gospel, the Old Testament, the New Testament. The other one clings to something else. As a result, we do great harm. Can I say this, this is an aside, and some people can say I'm just meddling? That's okay. But if you're someone who doesn't cling tightly 
the Old New Testament? If you're someone who doesn't find yourself glorying in, reveling in the gospel of Jesus Christ, glorying in and reveling in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, if the love of Christ doesn't control you so that you minister to one another and so that you minister to a lost and dying world, you're Alexander the coppersmith. That's the point that Paul's trying to give here. You are Alexander the coppersmith. You're doing great harm to the gospel. You're doing great harm to Paul's message because you're dismissing it. You're excusing it. So we're either Timothy or Alexander the coppersmith. So what do we do? Who is this guy? A little bit more. Let's, let's probe a little bit deeper. Maybe I'm overstating the case. Flip over to 1 Timothy. Chapter 1, starting in verse 18. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus, and Alexander, whom I handed over to Satan, that they may not learn to blaspheme. Interesting text. I said that we're, we're establishing a contrast between Timothy and Alexander the coppersmith. And here, one, one book earlier, one letter earlier, Paul to Timothy, Timothy or Paul links Timothy and Alexander very tightly with one another. Notice what he says. I'm going to read it again. This, I, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may, what? Wage a good warfare. So the Timothy-esque person is someone who is doing what? Clinging to the truth so that they may, what? Wage a good warfare for Christ is the idea, and for the gospel. And then he develops it even further, verse 19, holding faith or clinging to faith desperately. The picture is, is one of, if you could picture this, if you fell off of an of ocean vessel, a cruise ship, into the ocean, and the cruise ship's going about 30 knots an hour away from you, and one guy sees you fall off, and he grabs an O-ring buoy, and he throws it out to you because it's going to take probably an hour to turn the ship around. That's shark-infested waters and big waves. And he throws the buoy out to you, and it lands about 15 feet away from you. So can I ask you a quick question? Do you think you just sit there and float on your back and squirt water out of your mouth? What do you think? Think you just dive underwater and swim around and have a big old time? Or do you think maybe you'd frantically swim over to the buoy? You think maybe? Maybe? And do you think once you got to the buoy, do you think maybe you'd just have fun with it and throw it away and 
swim over to it again and throw it away and swim over it again. Oh, this is fun. Maybe, maybe try to jump over into it and go through it and just have fun and play with it. Is that what you would do? Or do you think you'd cling to it like your life absolutely depended on it? What do you think? I think you're an imbecile if you're playing around with the thing. You cling to it like your life depended on it because it really did. That's exactly what he's saying here. Holding faith with a good conscience. With a good conscience referring to repentantly. Clinging to faith like your life depended on it repentantly. You're identified as a repentant one by God. And nothing else mattered other than the faith. Everything hinged upon and was interpreted by your faith that God has given you. Notice what he does next. By rejecting this. Rejecting what? Rejecting what? The whole package. Rejecting what? Clinging to the truth. Waging a good warfare, which is very active, by the way. Holding firm, clinging to faith. Repentance. Paul goes on and says, by rejecting this, that is, there are some who what? Aren't holding fast to the truth. There are some in the church, there are some in the church that are not fighting a good fight. They're not waging a good war. They're not fighting or waging the war of faith. Glorying in Christ, advancing the kingdom, glorying in his victory. There are some in the church, Paul says to Timothy, they're not. They're glorying in something else. They're waging a different fight. They're not holding, clinging to faith. Faith is something that they practice once in a while. Maybe they have devotions every day. Maybe they go to church every week. But it's something they do once in a while. They're not clinging to it. If you are out in that ocean and you cling to that, to that buoy once a week or even seven times a week, how's that going to work out for you? That's not going to work out at all. Clinging to faith. There are some who are not clinging to faith. There are some who are not repentant ones. They're not turning from and to. They're not turning from their sin and to Christ. That's what he means when he says by rejecting this. So they may have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. By rejecting this, some have done what? The result has been what? What does it say? A shipwreck of the faith. What does that mean? What does it mean to be shipwrecked in the faith? Can I just submit to you? Let me just throw it out to you. You're not repentant. You don't find yourself living a life of repentance. You're not clinging to the truth. You're not clinging to the faith. What does it look like? Let me just give you a common term that I hear from people all the time. Steve, I just feel so cold spiritually. 
You should feel so dead spiritually. I just feel like God's so distant from me. Now, that happens to all of us once in a while, right? But I'm talking about characteristic. It's ongoing. It's regular. Let me ask you a quick question. When was the last time, you don't have to answer out loud, when was the last time you were absolutely enthralled with Jesus? And how often does that happen? When was the last time you were just absolutely caught up in the truth? How often does that happen? When was the last time that you found yourself enthralled with the reality that Christ is going to return and he could return today? And you found yourself literally and, 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 and from the heart saying, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I just want to know you more. When was the last time you were absolutely moved by Christianity and by Christ? Because we get moved by all sorts of things, don't we? When was the last time you were brought to tears if you cry at movies or something like that? When was the last time you were brought to tears by your sin? Now, if you're not a crier, okay, I can live with that. But if you're a crier at all, when was the last time you were moved to tears for your sin? When was the last time you were moved to tears for your neighbor who's hellbound? When was the last time you were moved to tears for your loved ones or your co-workers who are hellbound? Let me add to it. And you did something about it. And you were just drawn to you just the love of Christ controls you, unless you think I'm blowing smoke and, and overstating the case. When was the last time that the love of Christ controlled you and you found yourself speaking truth and you, you're like, Jeremiah, it was a fire in my bones. That's what he's talking about. When was the last time you were like David? You know, David in the Old Testament said, when I'm not in the temple worshiping, I just can't wait till I'm there. When was the last time that was you? When was the last time that was me? When was the last time that was any of us? That's what it means to reject. See, we think rejecting is like, I don't believe in Jesus. Well, that is rejecting. I don't believe that Christ paid the penalty for my sin. That's rejecting. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying rejecting is what he just talked about. Not clinging to the faith. Rejecting is not clinging to the truth. Rejecting is not waging a good war. That's what it is. By rejecting this, what happens? Some have made a shipwreck of themselves, of their faith. They're shipwrecked. You get the picture of shipwreck, don't you? We don't necessarily see it. We're here in the inlands. We don't necessarily see it. But shipwreck in Paul's day, they were, it was everywhere. Because most of you lived relatively close to the coast. Shipwreck was everywhere. There were old ships all beaten up on the shore, on the shoals, on the reefs. They're not seaworthy. They don't keep out the water. They don't function. 
If they're shipwrecked, it's useless. A shipwrecked faith is a worthless, useless faith. It's a faith that's powerless, cannot do anything. It's a shipwrecked faith. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus, who we don't know anything about, and, oh, lo and behold, here he is, Alexander. So Alexander, we now know, was what? In the church. He was a church guy. And he's just one of two identified, but he says, among others. That means there's a lot of others there as well. But he says here, among others, there is Hymenaeus and Alexander who have forgotten about, turned away from the truth. You've heard me say this before. There's a whole lot of people who start out really well, right? There's not many that finish well. There's a whole lot to start out well. But then, lo and behold, according to the, the parable of the four soils, what happens? Other things sneak in, right? Things happen. And those who seem to start out so well end up shipwrecked. That's what happens. Exactly what happens. And Paul warns Timothy here about Alexander. And he says about Alexander this. He says he's turned him over to Satan. You catch that? Whom I've handed over to Satan that they may not learn to what? To what? Blaspheme. Now, again, we think of blaspheme as being taking the name of the Lord in vain, right? And it is. But it's not just taking the name of the Lord in vain. To blaspheme is to take someone who is ultimately holy and treat them as not ultimately holy. To take someone who is ultimately worthy and say, in effect, whether it's verbally or by our lifestyle, they're not ultimately worthy and valuable. And to take someone who is ultimately important, and Jesus is, and to live life in such a way that he's not ultimately important. To take someone who is intended to be all life-consuming and live life as if he doesn't consume anything but maybe something on the peripheral, on the periphery. Better term, right, Tom? Periphery. That's what it means to blaspheme. That's what it means. It's scary when we start to think about it that way, isn't it? See, that's why Paul, for example, in in Colossians chapter 3 says, if you've then been risen with Christ, what does he say next? Anybody remember? Seek those things which are above, not on the earth. Set your mind on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Why? Well, the next verse informs us. Because you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So the classic blasphemy, the classic blasphemy of Christ is to live as if I haven't died, and my life is not hidden with Christ in God. To live my life 
with vast swaths of my life having nothing, nothing to do with Jesus and his glory and his kingdom. To live as if I'm not dead in Christ, but only one little aspect of me is. And then there's all sorts of other things that function on their own. Disconnected from Christ. It's blasphemy. He didn't die for a part of you. He didn't die for a little aspect of you and me. He died for us. Entirely. Jumping back over to 2 Timothy 4. <coughs> Paul says again, starting in verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Notice Paul's not looking out for vengeance, is he? In end of verse 14, what does he say? The Lord will repay him for his deeds. Can I just say this real quick before we get off of this? What Paul is saying about Alexander the coppersmith is this. On the one hand, he did him great harm. On the other hand, Timothy, beware of him so that you can oppose him. But in the middle of it, he says, God's bigger than Alexander. And God will repay him for his deeds. Which is another way of saying God will judge him for his deeds. That's what he says. We, we can deny it all we want. We can pretend like that's not true. But when we live our lives disconnected from Christ, we in effect are stealing honor and glory from God. That's what we're doing. We're thieves. That's what we're doing. We are thieves stealing honor and glory from God. And payback's a monster. That's what he says. When we're living our lives separated from God, when we're living our lives for our own glory, our own kingdom, our own praise, our own honor, fill in the blanks, whatever you want to call it, but it's not for Christ, God says through Paul, the Lord will repay that. That's what he says. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just telling you what he says. This is not your classic, I'm going to try to guilt you and, and scare you into, into Christ. This is just what he says. What do we do with this? That's the question. What do we do with this? How do we respond to this? Well, before we get to that, I want to move on because it's worse than that. He talked about Alexander the coppersmith warning Timothy, but then right after that, he moves on into verse 16, and he says this. You want to preach? <laughs> he says this in verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. I want you to let that sink in for a little bit. This is the Apostle Paul who spent his lifetime, his saved life, proclaiming Christ, planting churches, glorifying Christ, the love of Christ controlling him to minister to lost and saved people alike throughout his whole life as a believer. Then he's arrested and thrown into prison in, Tim, in, 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 Paul, in um, Rome. And in Rome, since he's a Roman citizen, he'd have trials. When he went up for his first offense, 
to present his case, typically in Roman law, what would happen is any advocates for the accused would present their case for his exoneration. This is why he's not guilty. They're advocates. So typically, when if you were charged with something and you were a Roman citizen, you'd stand before the court, you would present your case, then all the advocates would come in and say, well, we think he's innocent for this reason and that reason and another reason. This is his character and this is that and this is something else. And they would just try to avalanche the judge to let him get free by their advocacy. Paul gets taken before the court to give his case. He presents his case. After he's done presenting his case, the judge says, are there any advocates? And Paul turns around, and there's no one. No one. He's there by himself. Now remember, if they advocate for him, it's at their own risk, right? It's 64 AD. Rome is already burned. The Christians have been blamed. If an advocate stands up and advocates for him, they are most likely going to be persecuted, maybe even imprisoned. Nobody advocated. Now it's easy to say, yeah, well, you know, with that difficult situation, then I can understand. I probably wouldn't be either. Really? Really? You know what that means? It means you're Alexander the coppersmith. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't worth it. That's what it is. That's what Paul's trying to say. None of the believers stood up at my defense. They all fled. Sound familiar, by the way? That sound familiar? Where else does that sound like? Christ on the cross. They all fled. There was no advocate. None. Peter even. I don't even know the guy. Blasphemy. Nobody advocated for Paul. And that's why he's still in prison. Well, he, may, he may even have been an advocate, but there's a possibility he could get out if they have advocated for him. He didn't. So what's Paul's response to that? His response is really intriguing. Did you see it? At my first offense, nobody came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Does that sound vaguely familiar to you? What does that sound like? Yes, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. Now, you've heard me speak about that many years ago. They weren't forgiven when Jesus said that. That's a request, right? That's a request that was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 when people repented and they were forgiven. Nobody's ever forgiven until they repent. <clears throat> what Paul is saying here is nobody stood with me. My prayer for them is that they would all repent and therefore it would not be held against them. Now, did anybody do that? Yeah, I think some did. You know how I know? Jump down to verse 19. Greet Prisca and Aquila. Prisca is a shortened version of Priscilla, in case you were wondering. Read Prisca and Aquila, the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus remained in Corinth, and I left Trophus, who was ill, at Miletus. We don't know most of these people at all. So I'm not even going to address these people except that they're being faithful. They're preaching the word. They're ministering Christ. 
Do your best, Timothy, to come to me before winter. Then notice, <coughs> Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Prudence and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. You know what that means? This is the brothers in Rome. This is, this is Christians in Rome. They're not leaders, but they're Christians in Rome. Because the only leaders he already described is Luke. He's with him. There's some believers in Rome. And these believers, although they didn't go for Paul's defense, they obviously repented. They obviously repented. Because Paul and them are, Paul's not treating them like Alexander, is he? Quite to the contrary, he's including their names, saying, hey, they send their greetings. And who, what kind of person does he describe as sending greetings typically? People who are doing what? What? They're ministering typically alongside Paul. So here we have several people listed we know nothing about, but I can guarantee you these are people who did not go, because nobody did, but then afterwards they repented and they began to minister once again alongside Paul. And probably to Paul. So what do we do with this text this morning? Here's what we do with this text this morning. If you find yourself more like Alexander the coppersmith than like Timothy, if you find yourself more like Hymenius than Timothy, if you find yourself more like <coughs> the churches in Asia of chapter 1 than Timothy, if you find yourself more like 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9, than Timothy, if you find yourself more with a form of godliness but denying its power than having godliness with amazing power, if you find yourself more like those who are not waging a good war but are, are, are after something else, you're not clinging like your life depended upon it your, to your faith, that you're not clinging to the truth, What do we do? Can I just say this real quickly? May it not be charged against you. May it not be charged against you. That's what Paul's prayer was for him. May it not be charged against you. What does he mean by that? May it not be charged against you because you go back to the cross and say, I have sinned, I have wandered astray, and my life is shipwrecked or is in the process of being shipwrecked. Or if it's not even in the process, I hear the shoals. I hear the waves crashing on the reef. That's how close I am. That's how close. The text is trying to draw the contrast between Timothy, who is enthralled with Jesus, who is blown away by Christ, and who is moved by the love of Christ to proclaim Christ and to minister and to glorify Christ, to minister to lost people and save people alike. To know the word and know the truth and cling to the truth like his life depended upon it because it did. Or Alexander the coppersmith. Paul, in effect, is saying to you and I to examine ourselves. Who are we? 
Are we in trouble with Jesus? Is Jesus our hope and stay? Are we more like prone to wander? Lord, I, I, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, and I just get, I've kind of left. Kind of left. Kind of prone. Yeah, that happens. Hey, sirrah, sirrah. But boy, oh boy, isn't this cool? Or isn't that cool? Or isn't this other thing cool? Or I just can't wait for this. Or my life would just be good if only. And it has nothing to do with Jesus. May it not be held against you. The only way it is not is because we are repentant ones. Now, please, l- let, me help, let me help you understand. <coughs> if we truly have the love of Christ, then it's not held against us. Right? It is not. But if we truly have the righteousness of Jesus, you know what that means? It means we do repent. It means we do pursue. It means we do glorify. It means we do cling. It means, as a result, that we do wage a good war. That's what it means. Because if we have the faith, everything changes. Do you remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10? For a grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves as the gift of God, lest any man should, should boast. Right? For we are created, what? For good works. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, what? That he has foreordained that we should walk in them. Foreordained. You know what that means? It means that if we have, by grace through faith, been saved, you know what's going to happen? We're going to walk in the good works he's foreordained. This is going to happen. Otherwise, he's not a foreordaining God, but he is. And God never sits in heaven and says, wait a second, wait a second, back up the horses. I I foreordained Steve to walk in those good works. He's not walking. I don't understand what's going on. Heavenly counsel, let's talk about this. Something's wrong. Cogs loose in the wheel. Something's going on. Anybody have any idea? Jesus, Holy Spirit, anybody have any idea? Never happens. If he are foreordained it, it does happen. See, that's what's happening here. If we're truly saved, we're going to walk in good works. We're glorifying God. If we truly are saved, we're going to be a repentant one. And we're going to glorify Christ. And if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that cleansing means a complete restoration and a transformation of our heart. Can I encourage you to cry out to God? As Paul prayed, I think it was for the Ephesian church, that he would open the eyes of your heart. That you would see him as he really is. That you would not be shipwrecked instead, but you would have full sails of faith. Full sails. Tacking to the glory of God. Glorying in him, being satisfied with him, and the love of Christ controlling you. Turn to Jesus. 
If you're Timothy, beware. If you're a Timothy-esque kind of person, beware because there's coppersmiths in our midst. Always is. Beware. By their lifestyle and their words, they are doing detrimental things to the gospel of Jesus. Be aware. Fight the good fight. Wage war for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, <coughs> help us. These are challenging but important words. We are people who, if we're not careful, we tend to dupe ourselves even, thinking we're all right. And I suspect, I suspect the churches in Asia did the same thing. I suspect the churches in 2 Timothy 3 did the same thing. I suspect that Alexander the coppersmith did the same thing. I expect that the, the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 did the same thing. I expect the churches that received letters from Paul tended to do the same thing. As Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. We deceive ourselves all the time. So, Lord, we ask that you open our eyes to see. Change us. Draw us to repentance. And help us to revel in your forgiveness. Because you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in repentance, help us to learn how wonderful and how amazing and how loving you truly are. In your name I pray. Amen.